morning. I'm told that Thomas Jefferson once said, when angry, count to ten. When you are very angry, count to a hundred. And later, Mark Twain slightly altered the saying to say, when you're angry, count to ten. When you're very angry, swear. <laughs> and though that little saying is kind of funny, it's, uh, it's not a laughing matter, anger isn't. Most of us experience anger at various times. Sometimes we struggle with anger or we're afraid of it. Other times we struggle with other people's anger or we're afraid of that. It's um, often a problem in all kinds of relationships, even if it's not the presenting problem. It is a problem behind things, and it's obviously uh, the spark in most of the violence that's going on in the world today. But what God says in this passage is that it's not that anger is the problem. It's the source of our anger. We're angry about the wrong things and for the wrong Reasons, And we know that because the passage makes it clear that God himself experiences anger, which we want to think about this morning. Anger is um, at least somewhat like the physical sensation of pain. You have the sense of touch so that if you touch a hot stove, it tells you there's a problem and you can withdraw your hand so you don't get hurt. In the same way, anger is meant to signal to us that there's something going on inside that is at least potentially dangerous and we need to pay attention to it and deal with it. Now, anger is a very complex subject. Uh, The dictionary definition of anger is simply a strong feeling of displeasure, usually accompanied by hostility. And we know that anger is not always accompanied by hostility, but we're also aware that when we feel anger, it is a feeling of hostility or a desire to harm someone or something. And usually when we express anger, that's how it comes out. Another thing that tells us how complex anger is, is that in our language, at least, we have so many different words to describe anger. When a word is really important, that's what happens. You come up with all kinds of words to describe it. So we have synonyms in the English language like irritation, indignation, wrath, resentment, ire, outrage, exasperation, annoyance, fury, Rage, displeasure, irritation, vexation, animosity, hatred, hostility, acrimony, and matrimony. (laughs) But I threw that last one in. That wasn't real. You know, anger is obviously a very strong emotion, at least potentially strong. It may start with lesser things, and we might use words like annoyance or resentment or something like that. But it is capable of growing and becoming very strong. And uh, because it's so strong, it's often uncertain, like we're not sure what to do with anger. A person might say to us, well, you shouldn't be angry. The problem is we're going to be angry whether or not we want to in the same way that when we touch a hot stove, we're going to feel the heat whether we not want to. And uh, something that we need to understand is that God himself is angry. The Bible's very clear on that. Psalm 7 describes God in this way. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So it is a part of, we would say, the emotional makeup of the living God that he regularly feels anger. 
And if we think that his anger is only uh, felt towards those who are outside of relationship with him or those who are rebellious against him, that's not true. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 to the people of Israel, God was angry with me because of you when he's recounting a certain experience in the history of Israel. So, you know, all that that tells us is there must be a legitimate kind of anger, a godly anger, as well as what we often experience, an illegitimate kind of anger. And the fact is both of those are um, experienced in this passage or expressed, and that's what we want to, to look at. Now, the story, the first half of the story tells uh, something about King Ahab. We've talked about Ahab a little bit in the past. He was overshadowed during his lifetime by his much more famous father, who was named Omri and reigned for a long period of time. However, in the biblical history, Omri is covered in just a few verses because he wasn't that significant in the purposes of God, whereas uh, Ahab becomes the person whom we remember and learn a lot about. But the story is that he had a summer palace in a city called Jezreel, and next to the summer palace, there was a cultivated plot of land that he wanted to use for a vegetable garden. That sounds exceedingly uh, lame to us. You know, we can't imagine President Obama saying to whatever is next to the White House, I'd like to have that piece of property to grow vegetables, because we don't think of the president as growing vegetables. However, it's important to understand that until recent history, like about 100 years ago, the vast majority of people grew their own vegetables. Even if they lived in cities, if they had windowsills, they would grow vegetables on the windowsills. And uh, that's not common today, but this was in the ancient world, apparently something that was necessary. The thing is, it sounds like uh, something that is so... It makes so much sense to us. If you want something, you go to the person who owns it and say, as they have said, I'll either give you a better piece of property or I'll give you money uh, that you can name for the property. And yet we find that what he was doing was entirely illegitimate. And the reason is that property, physical property, like land in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, was never to be sold. When the Israelites, the people, took the land, they divided up what is now uh, where Israel and Lebanon is and so forth in the Near East. They, they divided it up so that every tribe had a certain large piece of land, kind of like provinces. And then that land was divided down within the tribes into clans and families so that initially every family received a rather a sizable piece of land. And through the centuries, that land became divided for the heirs and belonged to different people. So that here is this property that now belongs to this man named Naboth. And the law said that land belonged to the people forever. It could never be sold. Now, there were provisions if you got in trouble where you could lease the land to someone else, or you could even, uh, they called it selling it, but it was leasing it for a period of time. You might get out of debt that way. Or it may be that you now had no use for that piece of property, but it was useful to be cultivated. You could let someone else use it and grow crops there, but they could only have it for a period of time because every 50 years there was something called the year of jubilee, and on the year of Jubilee, all the land reverted to its original owners. So if you leased it, you would only lease it for the period of time left between now and the year of Jubilee. Its value would be set accordingly. And uh, what Ahab was asking, evidently, it's quite clear, is he's not asking to lease the land. 
he's asking to purchase the land. And that's why Naboth, who apparently is a godly man, answers the way that he does. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And while it sounds legitimate to us, if you think of a man asking another man, let me buy your wife. I mean, that's wrong. You know, we don't do that kind of thing. That's what the response would have been like because it was something that was built into the fabric of their way of life, that land belonged to families for all time. Now, Ahab asked to buy it, not to lease it, and that was a violation in part of the very law of God. Now, that happens throughout this passage. It shows how far Ahab and his wife Jezebel had moved away from seeking to obey the law that had been given to the nation of Israel. Now, why was he asking to do it? Well, he gives a, a, an external reason. I need a piece of property, which may have been true. To grow vegetables on, this one is very near. But the motives behind it, obviously, one was convenience. It was right next to the summer palace, so it would be very convenient, not have to travel a long distance uh, for the servants, whoever were going to grow the vegetables. The second was obviously its value. It's a vineyard, which means it's already a cultivated place. It has proven value in the soil-producing Goods And uh, the third was he shows his power in asking it because he says, I'll give you money, whatever you, know, you tell me. I'll give you that money or you can have a better piece of property that I'll get for you. So at any rate, Naboth shows that he regards God's word of less, excuse me, Naboth shows that he, he sees God's word as being more important than Ahab's word, even though Ahab is the king. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So we read of Ahab's manly response. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. You kind of picture a four-year-old, you know. And uh, you like that kind of guy for a father? I mean, it just wouldn't be the kind of person. And that's how we see Ahab throughout this story. He's a very weak man. He sulks and he pouts. Now, what he's experiencing is obviously disappointment, and that is the source of most anger. Uh, anger comes from disappointment, usually at having some kind of goal blocked in life. There's nothing wrong with having a piece of property to grow vegetables on. The desire to have that, I suppose, was not wrong, although he was incapable of purchasing for all time another person's piece of property. But his, his disappointment had turned into... Uh, and this is where anger comes from, a sense of demand that I have to have this piece of property. This person is blocking my goal, and my goal is somehow going to make life so much easier than I'm experiencing right now. And then what flows from his anger, we read about in the passage when Jezebel uh, comes and she says, what's wrong? He tells her, she says, I'll get the property for you. And she goes through this uh, very illicit way of having Naboth accused of having cursed God and the king, and these worthless fellows come to the elders, and they have a court of sorts, and Naboth is put to death. So she goes back to Ahab and says, go ahead and take it. It's yours. Now, when you think about it, most of the Ten Commandments were broken in this story. Um, first of all, he placed his desires above God's own law, Ahab did, which is the violation of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. His word was more important than God's. And then you obviously have murder, a violation of the sixth commandment. 
and uh, robbery, a violation of the Eighth Commandment, and forgery, and lying, bearing false witness, a violation of the Ninth Commandment, should not bear false witness. And then Ahab obviously starts with an illicit desire to have something that doesn't belong to him, which is coveting a violation of the Tenth Commandment. I mean, it's a, it's a crime that kind of draws to itself all the different commandments that are meant to regulate the way people relate to each other and breaks them. And that's how deceptive sin is. The Bible says in 1 John, sin is lawlessness, or sin is the transgression of the law. And that seems to be a mystery to us at times because we think, well, sin is something that arises from in out of selfish motives usually. Something that I want for myself is blocked. And rather than trusting God for it, I figure out some way to get it for myself. But um, the Bible says sin is lawlessness, most likely because when we can identify sin, we can't identify it as a motive. That's very hard to see people's motives. And you have to be very careful at trying to determine people's motives, but we can see it in the outward acts that are actual transgressions of God's moral will for human life. So anger springs out of selfish motives, but it, it, it involves actions that directly are harmful to relationships. And that's always true. That's how anger, uh, at least in illegitimate ways, expresses itself. You can think of a young girl, a teenage girl, let's say, who wants a date with a football player who's very popular. And so she prays that, that he would ask her uh, to go to the prom. And he does ask her and answer her to her prayers. And she is so happy about this, goes out and buys a dress. And then the day of the prom, he backs out for some frivolous reason. And she's obviously very hurt by that. Now, what's blocked? I don't think it's completely evil, but obviously she wanted a date with a person who in her circle of relationships is considered a really important person. It gives you a, a sense of status in a certain way or power in that group of people to be with such a desirable person. Now imagine that out of her disappointment, she decides to tell some lie about him. Uh, say that he has done something or whatever that he actually hasn't done, and great harm can come out of that in terms of his reputation or in other ways. But that's how anger shows itself. It's a sense of retaliation to harm a person in some way because of what they've done for me that has blocked some goal that I have. Or you can think of a man who's in his 30s, let's say, and he's got a job. He wants to advance in his job to support his family better and so forth. But the person who is ahead of him in the job refuses to retire or die or whatever it is he needs to do to get out of the way so that I can move into that position. And what this man does, and I've met people who have done things like this, he gets angry, and his anger is that this goal has been blocked. The goal itself is not bad. But what he does then is he sabotages the company in some way. It's like a way of retaliating and getting back a feeling of having power because of what he perceives as being done to him. But what were his motives? Well, his motives were probably mixed like most of our motives are, but there was some strong degree of prestige and position and power and security that he felt, I have to have this or life isn't complete. And so I'm going to do what I can do to get it. And what that kind of anger always says is, I know that God says that he will take care of me, 
but I'm not really sure I can trust God to do that. I don't think God is concerned for my welfare, or at least as concerned for my welfare as I am, or else he would give this thing to me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to circumvent whatever the obstacle is in some illegitimate way to get what it is I want to get. Now, that illegitimate may, way may just be harsh words, or it may be um, kind of ignoring a person that you feel has uh, harmed you in some way. Or it can be stronger actions that are more harmful to a person. But that's why, ultimately, anger is a spiritual issue for people. It has to do with trust. Will I trust God to give me in life what it is I desire to have? Or will I demand that I get it and figure out some way on my own to get it for myself? Now, the passage then moves immediately to the response to that. And the response is that God, through his spokesman, Elijah, goes to Ahab and he tells him essentially what the consequences are going to be for his behavior. But it says um, in the passage, in verse 22, God says, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger. Now, those are two previous kings whose dynasties were cut off. They had no heirs to the throne or their heirs didn't last very long. So he said, I'm going to make you like that. In other words, you won't have a lasting dynasty. Your rule is here, but you know, not after you. And uh, it says, for the anger to which you have provoked me because you have made Israel to sin. Now there, God says that he has been provoked to anger by this what has been done by Ahab and Jezebel. So he pronounces a judgment that you might say involves at least some natural and consequence, excuse me, natural and logical consequences of their behavior. First of all, their violence and willingness to have a person put to death illegitimately is going to lead to violent death for both of them. Both of them involve dogs. We might think of dogs as friendly creatures, but in the ancient world, dogs were... uh, almost always wild animals that roam through the streets. And uh, the the violence is going to be that the dogs will lick up the blood of Ahab, which happens literally a couple of chapters later, and that they will actually do something to Jezebel such that there's not enough left to bury, which literally happens in the next book, 2 Kings. And because they've stolen, not only been violent, but they've stolen, the kingdom will be wrenched away from them in such a way that they will not have descendants who will rule on the throne. So obviously God not only states that he's angry, but he says that there are natural and logical consequences of the behavior that you have engaged in. Now, it's important to accept that God is angry. And this is difficult for some people to accept. It's a it's a hard concept because we like to think of God as being good and, and being so secure within himself, the way we think of it, that he has no need to be angry. God is like this, this uh, vast, calm ocean of power and strength. And yet the Bible tells us that God is angry. It uses that word. And the whole basis upon which God is angry is because of sin. You see, the most important teaching of the Christian faith, in one sense, is the doctrine of sin. Because everything else flows out of it. If you have a healthy, clear understanding of what sin is, 
then your understanding of what it means to be forgiven of sins is going to match how clear and strong your concept of sin is. If you have a clear understanding of sin, then your response to a person's behavior is going to match your understanding of sin. If you think of sin as simply a lack of education, or a person hasn't been taught good table manners, and so they act not very nicely sometimes, you won't respond the way you should. And this has some application to our present struggle with terrorism, but I'll let you make that yourself. The question is, do you believe God is angry? And, and God is angry because there are violations of his moral will that he set up in the universe for the good of the creatures that he made. And when that will is violated in the various ways that people break the basic moral law of God, God is angry with it. And if you don't feel angry when you think about a racist teenager going into a church and killing a number of black worshipers after a Bible study, or you don't feel angry when you think of a terrorist going into a nightclub in Orlando and killing 50 people, then there's something drastically wrong with your understanding of life. I mean, there's something, your, your conscience in some way has been seared so that you can't feel the pain that you're meant to feel when you think about, experience, watch, hear about these gross violations of how God created the world. And God, we are told, as I mentioned earlier, says in Psalm 7, he is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. I have said before, but I was taught in my childhood that like God is too big for that kind of thing. He's, he's too big and, and far more concerned with the governing of the entire universe and the whole of this vast machine to worry about the individual attitudes of people. But the fact is, if your God is too big to worry about the individual attitudes of individual people, he's not really that big at all. God is so great, the Bible says, that he is concerned for the moral state of all the beings in his universe, including every individual human being now alive. And that's what the gospel is all about. The Bible has a full-bodied, intense, powerful, robust understanding of what sin is. It says that sin is like a disease that infects the human person in such a way that it is intensive, it's very powerful, and it's extensive. The whole person, intellect, emotions, and will is all riddled by sin. And redemption is God's work of taking back over that territory that has been taken over to sin. If you don't understand the nature of sin, and you think it's just a few acts that you committed in your childhood or, or something like that, you won't really understand what redemption is all about, what it means to be forgiven. If you have a full understanding of sin, and I can tell you it's taken me a whole lifetime of reading the Bible, to begin to understand what it means and to apply it to myself, when I begin to think about how deeply it goes into the human personality, one thing you realize is I cannot relate to a person except in a stain of sin, things that are stained by sin. Now, I have good motives, too, but they're always going to be stained by sin, and that's why I need Jesus every day, all the time. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's not just a, you know, I'll go to church once in a while and feel good about relationship with God or something like that. But all the godly anger is, it's the feeling and expression of God's 
attitude towards sin. For those of us who are in Christ, we know that God took out his anger on Jesus on the cross when he died for us. So that we were not forgiven just because God is a kindly grandfather who forgives everyone who feels really sorry. We are forgiven because God's anger was assuaged, it was satisfied, it was dealt with, so that now he is free to shower upon us his grace. I mean, we have to relate to the anger of God. That's what we're invited to do in Scripture. You, you do that, you might think of a funnel that starts big and it goes down to a small point. On the large level, we have to feel angry when we think about sin in this world and the way that it impacts nations and how they relate to one another and the foolish things that go on and all the, all the things over which we have no control. The, the mistreatment of marginalized groups in societies all over the world and, and uh, the wickedness of nations that causes their people to live in abject poverty and starve to death at times because of the sin of people in leadership. It, our only weapon on that level is prayer. And that's something as you go through life you realize... I'm incapable of dealing with or even grasping fully what it means to live in a world riddled by sin. And yet, God says it's that, that he's going to overcome ultimately. That's what this whole thing's about. But then you might think about another level. We live in a society and in a community in which we experience these things, but uh, much of that we can't do anything about. However, some of it we have power over in the way that we vote and the way that we live individually and the things that we stand up for, and that's what we should do as well. And then all of us, as we go through life, we experience firsthand or being drawn into relational kinds of struggles that involve sin and anger between people. And those are the things that we have the opportunity to deal with or seek to as representatives of Christ. But at each level, what we're doing is we're seeking to bring our heart in line with what angers God. Because God, we're told, is angry. Now, if you look at the end of the passage, there's this parenthetical statement in verses 25 and 26. It tells us something we already knew before we read this story or any of the preceding stories about Ahab and Jezebel. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Now, we didn't need to hear that to know that. The, he's a Casper milk toast, you know, who just kind of goes, sways back and forth between being a pretty good guy or a pretty evil guy, depending on who he's hanging around with that day. But his wife wasn't. He's presented in the Bible as a fool, like the, good the, the best example you can think of of a person in the book of Proverbs who is a, a fool, just chooses to live foolishly, she's an evil person. I, I wouldn't even guess as to whether this is, uh, there, there are more marriages like this or more the other way around. I suppose it's just a mixture of both. But you do have times when there is a very evil person married to a person who's just a fool and is, is in their wake. In fact, it goes on to say he acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. It's simply saying that here is the chosen people in the promised land and after 600 years, they're acting just like the people whom they dispossessed in the beginning. 
because of the wickedness and evilness of the people they dispossessed. Ahab's presented as a weak and henpecked follower, and that's why in the end his judgment is slightly softened. He seems to repent, and God comes back to him through Elijah and speaks to him and says that he was going to slightly modify what he had passed as judgment, and it wasn't going to happen. The full nature of it wouldn't happen during Ahab's lifetime, but after his death, the the rest of it would come to pass. So he doesn't see his wife die. He doesn't see his heirs die or any of that. But the point is, God has feelings too. And his feelings are the pure form of what our feelings are usually in a more twisted, less pure form. Usually, we're seeking something and it's blocked, and we become angry as a way to circumvent trusting God to meet our needs. God becomes angry because of the mistreatment of other people and the way in which his law is broken. So God's word is not stop being angry. In fact, it says in Psalm 4, be angry, but do not sin. God's word is not to tell us just to stop being angry because anger is something that we don't really have complete control over, though we have control over its expression. But it's to be angry about the right things and not about the wrong things. To seek to trust God with what you need in life. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you again for the freedom that we have to come to you this morning. And we pray particularly as we're facing so many things going on right now, so much violence particularly from Islamic terrorism and and all of the things that come out of that and the way nations conduct themselves and the choices that they make. And we pray that uh, you would help us to think how to respond to those things, not just by becoming angry and seeking the harm uh, of other people, but by entering into what it means to live in a fallen world and feeling the pain of that, and yet knowing that you have said, in the end, you will prevail over all these things. And you will establish a world in which righteousness dwells. We look forward to that day. We long for it. Pray this in Jesus' name.